Thursday, October 4th, 2018. Everyone's eyes are really widening. Is it my levels or just the date? It's the date. No, it's yeah. the date. You We've got like a month till the election is what I keep I thinking about, yes. right? So. I was just gripped by the momentousness of what we're about, about to, to do. I know. Yeah. It's really <laughs> dawning on me. Yeah, it's a big day. Uh, joint production. LA podcast. Give me shelter. The, how- the California housing podcast. We need a subtitle. California Housing Crisis Podcast. Yeah, you should Thank get the title you. right. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> you guys that should ch- in case the housing crisis ends and just, you and you want to keep the podcast going <laughs> just for longevity. We didn't think we'd right. probably change. You've it. got another couple decades right. max. <laughs> yes. Or if we run out of housing, you might want to drop housing. <laughs> just, the, just the crisis <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, we've got. Well, I, I'm Hayes Davenport, Scott Frazier, Alyssa Walker from L.A. Podcast, and we've got Liam Dillon from the L.A. Times and Matt Levin from Cal Matters from Gimme Shelter, the yeah. California Housing Crisis this Podcast. This is the, the, the most likely crossover event in history. We've I we've been say. circling each other for a while. <laughs> yep. Yeah, very. Yes. So you guys have seen the picture of the Power Rangers and the Ninja Turtles crossing over. I want I'm just. Staking out ground that we're the Ninja Turtles. Okay. And, and you guys can be the Power Rangers. Okay. It, each of you is covering two Ninja Turtles. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm Raphael. I'm Raphael. You can have the rest, Liam. That's fine. That's okay. Yeah. Well, we just to get our the our, our joint production going, we uh you guys have a lot more recurring segments than than we do. You're savvier than we are in terms of production. We only have one really, okay. uh, which is we each tell an LA story at the beginning of the podcast. But in the interest of time, I thought we could just have Liam tell one from his current visit to yeah, LA. You were in town, yeah. yeah. An LA story that's evocative right. of this sort of encapsulates everything about being in the city. And possibly provocative, yes. if you want. Always. So far, they've all been very provocative. So this is this is probably pretty hacky. Uh, but on my Lyft ride uh, from the Times studio or Times new offices in El Segundo uh, to downtown where we are, um, my Lyft driver uh, was a director, actress, writer, which is I think common. Uh huh. Right? Um, mm. What? See, see how hacky he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. And uh, wrote, classic out of towner LA yeah, story. I, mean, I know, right? I just why I feel like this is a joke, right? Um, and really showing my actual lack of knowledge of Los Angeles, which is a shame. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so it's a fascinating uh, little movie she's done about a fictionalized version of a 2014 law in Uganda where they banned miniskirts. Okay. Wow. And the results of that. That's and interesting. Yeah. She so, should have, did she give you a flash drive? They should just, ha- they should have them on a flash drive, just in a little bag with the mints and the, exactly. <laughs> the, the or screen the trailer, the like yes. on the video right. screen. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. yeah. So I was just like, wow, this must be what it's like to live here. We should do a table read. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, yep. Liam, and welcome, Matt, uh, via Skype to, to LA. Um, we should we do an avocado of the week? Do you want to introduce your avocado of the week segment? Fortnite. Oh, that's right. It's yeah, a fortnight now. You know, every other week. Of we course, <laughs> that's right. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, L- avocado L- of the fortnight. Liam, this is sort of. Liam, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Do you want right. to, uh, for the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of listeners that 
may not know of Gimme Shelter. Do you want to give like a little spiel about um, what we do and how tolerable our podcast is? This is a good idea. This is why why you're in charge. Uh, so uh, every couple of weeks, we produce a podcast taking a look at some of the deeper issues behind California's housing affordability problems uh, with a lens predominantly through kind of state policy. But we talk about all the ballot initiatives you're going to be voting on. We talk about legislation. We talk about how that affects regular people. Um, and uh, it's a good time. And we also talk about ballot initiatives. Yes, we LA. I guess we should make the case for LA podcast. <laughs> See, as well. that was a transition. To, my yeah, transition. To, to give me shelter, listeners. Uh, we talk about all that stuff too, but specific to LA. Uh, and we also talk a lot about uh, local transit, schools, police, uh, all kinds of like a like <laughs> lo- local politics uh, stuff that is relevant to the people who live here yeah for our LA listeners who only understand things in uh in movie analogies we, we kind of have a zoomed out and then zoomed wide far wide frame and then zoomed in dynamic going on with uh with the California housing crisis podcast and LA podcast yeah this episode that's good that's good that's right um, and, and, and do you want to describe the avocado of the of the Fortnite segment that you guys do? So uh, it's a sort of uh, humorous but insightful moment that <laughs> <laughs> that takes a look at kind of a, an interesting uh, uh, anecdote that describes a larger truth okay. about housing problems. And how did it get that name? Sure. So the the Fortnite part came from a loyal listener who every time we said avocado of the week, would tweet us and say, but you guys only come on every two weeks. You should really fix this. They were trying this. to get to you. you. They were trying to get you back weekly. Like. Yeah. Um, the avocado part came from a Australian developer who um, a couple years back now said that the reason millennials could not afford to buy homes uh, was because um, we, I think I'm fair in saying we, is everyone here a millennial? No, I'm not. Sorry. Ooh. Oh, so, okay. All right. Well, it's, it's an exclusive. I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> You're a millennial in spirit. Um, was that so? The the Australian developer said the reason millennials can't afford to buy homes was because uh, they spend too much money on avocado toast, um, which is empirically true. You know, the, he had a study, um, <laughs> used a couple instrumental variables, and just conclusively showed that we were spending way too much on avocado toast and thus could not afford home. So it's in that spirit that we pick something that's hopefully amusing or whimsical or also kind of a lighter side of the housing crisis, although this specific avocado of the Fortnite uh, veers into... No, no whimsy here. It's one of no the darkest, here. Yeah, this, this is, is the brownest, bad. ugliest this avocado. The one when you cut into it and you just know right away. Yeah, that it's like moldy almost on the edge. Yeah. The it's got like those strings in it, you know what I'm talking about? Like some of them, oh, yeah. They're like stringy. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a Philadelphia avocado, Liam. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a response from that. I don't have a response to that because yeah. he's true. It's true, so... In, in fact, whenever I go home back to Philly, uh, my whole family says you need to bring us a, a dozen avocados. I love that. Yeah. That feels like the old, like in the the uh, boom town era of yeah. L.A. They would you would send up like orange crates yeah, like to crates. everyone yeah, you knew. You and people had never seen these weird fruits yeah. before. Yeah, like the Colombian Exchange almost. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So let's talk about uh, th- this week's this Fortnite's avocado. So we'll talk more about the idea of citing homeless shelters and uh, in Los Angeles 
but there's been a lot of meetings about doing this. All yes, we have talked about time. this extensively. Yeah. Uh, in particular, uh, the, the, there was one in, in Koreatown mm-hmm. um, that was announced. Uh, we've did, we did probably four episodes about it. Uh, this is part of uh, Eric Garcetti, the mayor's uh, a bridge home project uh, in which each of our 15 council districts was going to build a uh, temporary shelter uh, and also be required to build a certain amount of permanent supportive housing. And the first temporary shelter that was announced was in Koreatown, right by the subway station there at uh, Wilshire in Vermont. Uh, and it generated huge protests, marches, uh, Everything short of a, a literal firestorm, I would yeah. say, you could attribute to this. <laughs> yes. And they threatened to recall the council member, which we'll go back to again later as well. But yes. yeah, it and, was bad. And it resulted in that shelter being moved. Uh, a lot of uh, papers, including Eurotlia, reported it as uh, moving within Koreatown, but it actually, or on the outskirts of Koreatown, it actually moved out of Koreatown entirely into the Westlake uh, MacArthur Park area. Uh, and I believe the second shelter to be announced was in Venice in Mike Bonin's district. Uh, and that also generated a lot of protests. And then the third, it was in, uh, Sherman Oaks and David Rue's district. And, Actually, you missed oh, Hollywood. CD 13 oh, is in Hollywood right. and Hollywood is breaking ground next month. You know why I wow. missed it was because, I have to credit CD 13 and Mitchell Farrell's office. Farrell. They did yep. a really good job with outreach. And I think that it's pretty clear, like where it has to be yeah. in that neighborhood as well. I hope nobody listening to this is like, what? <laughs> Sorry, it's already Trigger breaking board. ground. This is <laughs> already breaking ground. Already breaking ground. Uh, so yeah, let's, uh, but we wanted to talk about specifically so, the, the Sherman Oaks. Sherman Oaks. So Sherman Oaks, uh, public, big public meeting, people not happy. And one of those who are not happy was a gentleman named um, Rick Marcelli. And I'll just read from an LAist article that described what Mr. Marcelli had to say about the um, homeless shelter in Sherman Oaks. Rick Marcelli draws a distinction between homeless residents in need of help, a helping hand, which he supports, and those he calls, quote, criminal transients. Either way, he argues that, quote, tough love is the answer. You already comply as a citizen, as a taxpayer, or you don't, he said. You want me to have compassion for people who don't care about themselves? The lifelong Los Angeles resident has an extreme alternative. Have the federal government step in and move them out of the urban area. Quote, I'm proposing maybe you build a reservation for the, the home, these homeless somewhere out in the desert with all the help that they can be given. He said, when we interned the Japanese during the Second World War, we didn't intern them in the city. Pretty. Whoa. Like, uh, maybe the most shocking thing I've seen for attribution yeah. uh, in like a local like a local outlet in a long time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's really really horrifying. Yes. But not too dissimilar from in the lead up to the 84 Olympics what we reported on at Curbed. Uh, one of the city council members before the 84 Olympics wanted to send uh, the drunks and the vagrants as in his words out to a farm camp so they could sweat it out and uh, use their bodies for labor. I think was some of the the quotes from that. So not a, not a new idea. And actually, uh, when we were talking a couple of weeks ago uh, about the Koreatown shelter and the fight that that engendered, there were similar comments by a uh, a pastor in Koreatown who was part of the like broader oh, yeah, Keep Koreatown right. uh, movement who actually said something very similar uh, with regards to why don't we take 
all of the homeless people and move them outside the city limits, I think, which you could basically understand to be outside of L.A. Like County. West, like West Hollywood. Oh, OK. Yeah, I, I think I think you really meant out of the region. Right. Um, and, you know, people have issues with understanding where L.A. ends. But like but yeah, that sort of notion of kicking people out of the urbanized area is around. It's definitely mm-hmm. in the air and it's it's really uh, frightening that people think you can just move individuals like that against their will and, without regard to their and, safety and intern them in and intern yeah, them and, right. literally, and literally invoke yeah. one of the darkest periods of American history yes. in a positive light right. as a solution. I think as we basically do have internment camps right now for uh, yes. people who are being detained. Yeah, forward. absolutely. And that, that, that would be expressed couched in, I care about these people. We have right. to do something for Tough them. love. Yes. Yeah. That our, our discourse right now is so anti-homeless uh, that that would be seen as like an appropriate thing uh, to say uh, to a reporter. I think it's almost helpful that the subtext is kind of becoming text yeah. in yes. this way. Uh, I think it is... There's so much coded messaging when people talk about people who are homeless about we have to do this is just not the right place to put them. We need to like do something that will actually help them rather than things that will enable them when secretly the only response that a lot of these people would be okay with is putting people in jail or just shipping them out of the city entirely or both in this guy's case. So I because if you don't think that's an appropriate humane response, there are certain people in this conversation who just kind of can't really be engaged with. At some point, there's a certain population of uh, like a lot of homeowners, especially that you just kind of have to ignore when it comes to uh, taking care of people who are homeless. The interesting thing that Matt and I talk about a lot is the homeless discussion at the state level is almost entirely about money. Like Mm -hmm. we need to provide money and give money to the cities and the counties so they can do all the things that they want to do. But what that ignores at the state level is like actually citing something is a huge, huge, huge issue. Mm -hmm. And you could throw all the money in the world at it, but unless and until you, someone's willing to say, let's put this in my backyard or here, then the money doesn't matter. Yeah, we here, I think, have a lot more money right now than we're able to spend. Uh, is I mean, like, eventually, I'm sure all that money will be spent. Right. But how many HHH uh, projects are... What's are, to tell our audience sorry. what HHH yeah. is? Yeah. It, it, yeah. HHH was a, a ballot measure that was passed, uh, I want to say, on Election Day uh, 2016 um, that allocated over a billion dollars uh, to... Or b- billions across multiple years uh, towards new housing for people who are homeless, permanent supportive housing. In L.A.? In L.A., yes, L.A. City. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe one of those projects, two of those projects have broken ground. Uh, Lots are... are, Lots are coming, but... But lots are being held up. Lots are... Well, we can talk more about that. I think we're going to talk more about that as well. But yeah, Yeah. being held up, but also this idea that, yeah, that the council members themselves can be the ones who say, eh, you know, not there, you know, not in my district. Yeah. Uh. So, yeah, I mean, the money's there right now uh, to, to, to put up units. It's not a matter in here anyway of allocating more money. It's much more about public opinion uh, in terms of figuring out places to, to put this housing. In your, in your guys' conversations of uh, homelessness uh, in other parts of the state of California, um, 
have you run across a lot of sentiments like this? I, we know that like LA has a an even more exacerbated homelessness crisis than other parts of the state and country. Um, but I, I wonder if these sentiments are reflected elsewhere or if, or if we really are an outlier in terms of people having this really visceral reaction to finding places to home, house the homeless. Yeah. I, yes. I think it's just, I think it's at the same, a lot of, I think it's each place has its own challenges and all of the challenges I'm thinking particularly of San Francisco and San Diego are also great. I mean, San Diego had a hepatitis A outbreak, yeah. right? you know, because they weren't able to address in a meaningful way their, the homeless population there. San Francisco, you know, we could talk a lot about um, all the sorts of things that are going on with the, a number of folks who are in the streets and discussions of, of, uh, of even um, putting up a, um, uh, a, uh, a safe injection site uh, as a as part of the sort of the, the long-term homelessness solution is a certain population that, that would be served by that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think each big city in the state has its own challenges um, that are pretty stark in this area. Yeah, L.A. is by no means unique with this type of opposition. And then just to, to broaden it out, not just to um, uh, either temporary or permanent housing for people experiencing homelessness, but just affordable housing broadly, the degree to which people are explicit in their bias against low-income Californians in these city council meetings is extraordinary. So last, the last podcast that Liam and I did, we talked about a project in Cupertino where an individual that was opposing the project literally put on a PowerPoint slide, um, because this project, about half the units were going to be reserved for low- and moderate-income people, the PowerPoint slide literally said, if we bring these people into our community, they have a lower level of education and it will not be good for us. Yeah, so it was basically, it was arguing like it will make us uncomfortable or yes. something, right? Yeah, that was like, the exact yeah. language, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so, and, and I also just want to reinforce what Hayes said. I think when this type of explicit bias is out there, I think it's, it's actually good for those that want to build more of this housing because nobody wants to be on the side of the guy who is invoking uh, Japanese internment camps as a example of what to do, right? I, I think these types of things are actually good in that way. I'd never thought about it like that. Yeah. Well, I think for the pro housing people, it does give you something to point to exactly. and just say, this right. is what we're up against. Exactly. And I think actually uh, the, 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 I don't want it's not, it wasn't a riot. It was almost a riot. And uh, in Sherman Oaks, uh, when uh, David Rue, the council member was there, that uh, generated a, pro uh building uh the the supportive housing risk like response uh event um and so i think that this kind of thing can 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 be good yeah can galvanize people but i think it's still the case we talk about this kind of thing a lot in la i think it's true in a lot of cities i think the majority of people that live in the city are pro giving the services and the housing to people who are homeless that they need, but they are not as vocal as the people who are against it. So I think we have the numbers in favor of doing something like this, but the, the, the volume is, is out of proportion. Something else from that meeting that was pretty troubling was that, you know, David Rue gets up there and starts talking about this and people start chanting recall, which is now, I guess the, what we do for what, right. what can, groups of people do. Can we back up and just uh, explain what this meeting was and oh, yeah. and, and what happened there? Alyssa, yeah. do you want to? Well, yeah, I mean, it was 
uh, just, it was the same meeting. I don't even think that they were specifically there to talk about the site of the shelter or anything, you know, a, a site hadn't been determined even yet. So, um, there were a couple of maybe options on the table, just they like, as two, any, I think yeah, I mean, but it wasn't even like totally determined yet. And the council member was there, I think for other things as well, it wasn't just for this particular thing, but it, it's been, it's been a similar thing and it's been a similar outcome in many meetings that we've seen from anything from road diets to which we've talked about on our show um, to again like the sighting of a homeless shelter and uh, you know they get up there and they try to present we have this need they show data we have this amazing homelessness count that shows uh, where people are experiencing homelessness and and where the numbers show that most people are living on the streets and they pick sites that are either city-owned properties they um, LA Times actually did a great story of like picking out um, over a hundred sites across the city that would be good for these um, for these shelters that were on city-owned parking lots. And in most cases, this little parcel that has you know had been discussed is very close to the freeway. It's unused land. It's nothing that is uh, maybe in front of people's uh, businesses or anything uh, that would would trouble anyone. You know, <laughs> close to the freeway. I was like having like you know concerns about it being so close to the freeway and like all the horrible air pollution and uh, the fact that we'd even build housing there. But this is the land that's available. And when he get up got up to discuss it, uh, some of the neighbors started chanting recall. And he was like, wait, 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 wait. We're not even we're not even decided anything yet. And I think that that's a super dangerous uh, knee jerk reaction. But it's been rewarded in the past. And this is the cost of, for example, moving the Koreatown location uh, on on threat of recall to Herb West and the the council member in uh, in that district. Uh, I saw there's a change.org petition uh, to move the Sherman Oaks sites now or to stop the housing from being stop it. I don't even think they care about it. Yeah, Yeah, they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's being put up by the guy that owns the auto body shop across the street from uh, the site on Dickens in Sherman Oaks, where the permanent supportive housing would go. Uh, and I saw a lot of comments, people saying we should do what they did in Koreatown. We have to just be relentless about this until they move this site. The recall threat also worked uh, against uh, Councilmember Mike Bonin when he put in a road diet in Playa del Rey. Uh, that How long did that road diet last? Well, yeah, I mean... We can get into that another time. But yeah, but basically they reversed it. The fact that they caving on these things emboldens everybody else. Uh, So now the threat of recall has been, has become like this rallying cry and that's somebody has to stand up for this. And our mayor was out of town again, which is another problem that we can talk about. This is his initiative. And it's imploding. So we just have to vent a little bit, you guys. Like, just <laughs> let it, you know. <laughs> no, it's just, I mean, you know, but again, like as, as I was saying before, the fact that, you know, we are able to talk about what people in Sacramento are talking about and high-level stuff about, well, it's not getting built or the numbers are bad or whatever, but when it comes down to it, the system that we have in California in particular is the locals decide what goes where and whether anything gets built at all. And that's the reality. So no matter, again, how much money Sacramento throws at the issue or locals even throw at the issue, at the end of the day, in order to put sticks in the ground, someone has to say yes. So should we talk about the governor's amazing uh, mandate, I guess, for what L.A. council members specifically have to do now? So this is really interesting. Um, so this is a uh, uh, the, this legislation that was uh, authored and now signed by Governor Brown uh, began with an LA Times story uh, by my great colleague uh, Emily Alpert writing about the fact that 
individual council members here uh, have a essentially a pocket veto over um, permanent supportive housing projects in their districts where they can, uh, in order for a, a project to be eligible for money, um, which is essential to these projects getting built, there has to be a sign-off, uh, essentially, for, for that individual council member. And that has held up projects in the past, the lack of that um, uh, uh, sign-off in, in a way that's not particularly transparent, right? No vote, no nothing, just doesn't exist. And for any reason in the for world. For any reason. There's no, yeah. It's they've a, been uh, current price. Uh, the council member vetoed a project on Florence Ave in South LA just because it looked too boxy. He wanted some of the bedrooms to be bigger, and the developer was like, I can't. That doesn't pencil out if they're bigger. And so, yeah, current price put the letter in his pocket, and it never got done. Mm -hmm. Monica Rodriguez, I think, um, wanted the color the color scheme changed on a building in Silmar. So it, it's all... All, but do you think they really wanted those changes? I, so I, know, who I, am I, I to mean, say? Here we here we are gathered to to mourn one of the the many unilateral levers that you get as an LA City Council member. <laughs> the, the power is just not what it used to be. But uh, but yeah, I, th I think it's great that that California stepped in because this this is one of the areas where um, actually several times in the past um, X number of sessions we've had. Uh, state senators and uh, legislators make proposed changes to the way that government is uh, administered here in LA only to have LA local officials say uh, that's not fair you know we're capable of reining in our own uh, government on our own but yet things like this pocket veto, they just seem to persist year after year until the state actually does something about it. So what's interesting about this legislation is normally when you have legislation that affects a certain region of the state, a representative of that region of the state is the one who sponsors it. Yeah. Uh, in this case, that was not true with Assemblyman David Chu, who's from San Francisco. Uh, he's the head of the Assembly Housing Committee, so certainly someone who's very active on housing issues. He's the one who wrote the bill that said, no state money for your project, any city, if you have um, this sort of pocket veto system. But it was a clear shot. Oh, it was absolutely LA. inspired by L.A. He wasn't you know, hiding that. It was totally yeah. inspired by L.A. and wanted to end the practice in, in L.A. And usually, yeah. again, you have a co-author from L.A. or something. Didn't happen here. And somehow it made it through the process and the governor signed it. So that means if uh, L.A. wants state money for housing projects, they have to change the way they do things. And I... Uh, I think it's important to say, though, that there is no matter how many of these state housing programs get passed to fund a homeless housing projects, uh, there is going to be a finite amount of money to go around L.A. with its enormous homeless population necessarily gets a lot of the, the funds that come out of any state program. So it makes sense for uh, the other counties in the state to want to level the playing field with L.A., make sure that uh, the money that accrues in LA is actually going to be able to get spent, not just pile up. And if not, then they can use that money for something, uh, in their districts. I think, I think it only makes good sense. And I'm glad that, uh, somebody proposed it. I mean, is there any city that you think is doing a really good job? I mean, have you guys have been reporting on these issues? Like, is there a California city that is a model for this? We, we get asked that question 
um, a good amount, and there's always an awkward silence, like there just was. <laughs> a little sigh. <laughs> we can edit it; so it'll be long, even longer. <laughs> just more, more, more awkward silence. So, so the, the the truth is, is I don't know of an exemplary city, um, Liam. I don't know if you if you have cities that you know of that are doing it better than others. Um, yeah, we we get asked this a lot, and we don't have any good answers, really. There are some folks in Silicon Valley who will swear to me that their bond system that they passed a couple of years ago is working out very well. Um, you know, uh, so take that for what it's worth. Um, obviously, there's tremendous housing challenges in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, but at least in this respect, um, I, people are telling tell me all the time that they should be seen as a model for for how to get money and then how to spend it. Sorry, I know that wasn't satisfactory at all, but that's... Not good, not good. Well, what we it's, got. It's, it's what, what I expected. <laughs> so you guys are both based in Sacramento, which mm-hmm. I visited earlier this summer, and I was interested to see so much infill development, like a yeah. lot of housing being built, or at yeah. least it looked like it. Like, what's it like in Sacramento, especially since so many of these legislators are, are there um, you know, living there and, and maybe, you know, impacting what's going on there. Yeah, well, there's definitely been a boom in infill development the last couple of years. Um, at the same time, I guess 2015 and 2016, the rent in, the average rent increase in Sacramento will, like top the national list of mid-sized cities. Um, so you didn't really see a connection yet um, between the significant amount of building and the uh, – a drop in rent prices um, until this year. Um, this year, uh, Sacramento saw a marginal increase in rents, and it was mostly attributed to the significant amount of building that's been happening. Um, in terms of kind of the culture of opposition to new, new building, I'd be interested to get your take on this, Liam. I, I think there's less of this, at least in urban Sacramento than there are in certain parts of LA and certain parts of the Bay Area. Um, but that's just a, a broad, relatively uninformed take. Um, but uh, you don't see the same type of heated opposition to you know the new eight-story building that's going up in Midtown that you would see in the Mission, for example, or that you would see in Boyle Heights or something like that. Yeah. I think that that's true. I also think that there has been a lot more agitating that you in Sacramento recently than as you see around the state. There's a big was a you know tenant groups there tried to put a rent control measure on their ballot. They were not successful, but they were successful in convincing the mayor of Sacramento, uh, Daryl Steinberg, who is a former leader of the state senate, so very t- plugged into what was happening in the state, to consider some rent stabilization measures. And um, depending on what happens with uh, the prop- proposition ten, the rent control expansion on the ballot. Uh, sort of go either way, but that that was something he was not open to before, and I think he's been pushed by tenant groups to say now's something that that he wants to consider. Excellent transition. That's great. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. That was a well-crafted transition. Uh, we had some news. We've talked about, both of our podcasts have talked a lot about uh, Proposition 10 on the November ballot uh, to repeal uh, Costa Hawkins. We've talked a lot about what Costa Hawkins is, how it re- uh, restricts rent control expansion across the state. Uh, but there was some news on Proposition 10 the only poll that I have seen was it the only one that's been that's been done? Only public yes. poll that's uh, sort of worth the salt. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, do, you, do we uh, talk about this poll, Liam? 
So the Public Policy Institute of California, which is a nonpartisan uh, group well-respected across the state, uh, released their poll uh, in September. Um, and it was a bit surprising uh, given, I think, what uh, people have generally believed about the popularity of rent control because while it did show that in general, like we've seen before, rent control is popular, it is sort of 52% support in that poll. Proposition 10, however, uh, is not per the poll. I mean, it only had... Um, 36% support, uh, 48% opposed, and 16% undecided. And that's a that's really, really difficult number for proponents to say, you know, we, we're in good shape because it's it's the opposite. You Including know? Yeah. a majority of renters. Right. Against. And that was, you get in the, get in the cross tabs about some of the people who said this is good or bad. And the fact that you have the majority of renters saying no to this initiative is, uh, again, a sort of probably the most stunning finding, I think, mm. from the poll. Again, only one poll, uh, but these guys are well respected, well known. We'll see what future polls have to say, but certainly not a good starting point for the proponents. Yeah. So, I, I mean, uh, tenant protections do pretty well nationally. California obviously has its own uh, political restrictions to contend with. Costa Hawkins isn't something that necessarily exists uh, anywhere else. Um, but it is very surprising to see that 51% of renters would be against this. Do you guys have any uh, hypotheses about why that might be the case? So there's uh, a couple... Get, well, do you want to start? Uh, yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I think I only have one point, and I think okay. it's the one you're going to make, Liam. And well, this I time... Two. I had two, so you can do the one, and then I'll do Sweet. the other one. Yeah, okay. This time, I get to make the point before Liam does. It's rare yeah. on the podcast that that's what happens. <laughs> also, is this still Prop It Like It's Hot, or... Has this that? is yeah. This we what? already did a big prop lock and drop it for this. Uh, <laughs> so this is like a reprop. Yeah, I don't know if you would. Yeah, yeah, We're going back I, in. Yeah, I I yeah. Um, okay, so my scorching hot take on the prop ten, um, the fairly dismal prop ten showing. How you ask a poll question matters. That's yes. very obvious, but in this case, it is especially true. And I'm just going to read you what the PPIC poll actually asked respondents. Okay, and keep so in like mind, pretend you got the call. Okay, yes. right? Everybody I'm, put I'm your, Extremely yeah. low information. Maybe on your, do we know if it was landline it's or? Both, both, okay, both. both. Okay, that's important too, right? So, okay. Okay. Yeah. Ring, ring. Yeah. Yes. Ring, ring, ring. Hello. Hey. Um, I just hang up instantly. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I was already. I'm busy. <laughs> okay. Um, go ahead. Do you want to ring ring again? Hi, 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 pollster. Hi. Do you have nothing to do for the next 20 minutes? I do. I have nothing to do. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so this, this is the actual question that they asked. Um, Prop 10 is called the Expands Local Government's Authority to Enact Rent Control on Residential Property uh, Initiatives. No, no. It repeals state law that currently restricts the scope of rent control policies that cities and other lo local jurisdictions may impose on residential property. The fiscal impact is potential net reduction in state and local revenue of tens of millions of dollars per year in the long term. De depending on the actions by local communities, revenue losses could be less or considerably more considerably more if the election were held today would you vote yes or no so you made it sound real bad yes that's so, a total no for so, me so the the reason it's phrased like that is because it's supposed to mimic what people are going to initially see on their ballots and the fiscal impact is going to be 
one of the first things that they see. So the, there's a reason PPIC did it this way. But the, okay. this at least partly explains the disparity between the approval for Prop 10 and the approval for rent control broadly that Liam just described, right? The other thing... Yeah. To, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say, absolutely. I think if you hear that on the phone, it sounds like there is a huge amount of uncertainty that if I were somebody who were unfamiliar with it to start with, I would say... I don't know. Why would I why would I vote for this? Also prop 6, which is also the gas tax repeal, also a yes on a repeal. Exactly. Also aid yes, us exactly. in this poll. Yes. It's confusing to say to vote yes because you want to get a law node. Right. Uh, is 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 complicated. And I think with all these ballot measures, you kind of have to assume the dumbest reason possible for why. Uh, so why. in the same poll did they ask about rent control, like what was that question? Do you have that language of like what? And that's how they knew that where there is the disparity between there, the they, actual. I don't know if you have the question, but that's where they yes. got the 52 right. percent number. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so in support. I, I do. If you want to, yeah, let's it. hear it. Let's hear it. Do the phone call skit. Okay. okay. Um, do you think rent control, that is the ability of local governments to set limits on how much rents can be increased each year, is a good thing or a bad thing? Why it's a good thing. I'll, That's I'll put you in the yes category. <laughs> you, you would join fifty-two percent of and people scene. saying. So that. why did yeah. they lead? So they we know they led with the other question, and then you could have just hung up at the first part anyway. So right, we even got to the well, second question. I, I do want to. I do want to add. So this is just likely voters, right? So if yeah. there is some huge wave of um, progressives, wave. a lot of which would be disproportionately tenants or renters. You know, that maybe maybe this changes a little bit, but 51 percent just pro rent control is not that great a starting right. place. No. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah, it's and not. That, that precedes an avalanche of negative advertising um, from the incredibly, 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 incredibly <laughs> wealthy uh, apartment association. So, all right. Yeah. Ho- hopefully well, I took away all of Liam's points. <laughs> Yeah. I, well, you took the one and then Hayes took the other one the about, other. Okay. about the yes for repeal. So I don't, right. I don't like anything left to say except I can expand on the money now because we're transitioning. Yeah. So, um, yeah, three and a half to one in terms of the latest financial reports in which landlord lobby is out spending or out raising rather the proponents of uh, of Prop 10. Uh, I don't think that 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 disparity is surprising in any way, shape, or form. Of course they are. Of course they are, right? But I think, again, given the amount of ground that it looks like proponents have to make up to tell people, actually, if you vote yes, I mean, this means more rent control potentially. When you're when you're avalanched by people saying, no, 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 this is bad, and that's what you're going to see in your mailbox and on your television, again, it's such a, such a big hole for them to have to climb out of. Now, I got to say, after we talked about this on our podcast the other day, um, I really looked in vain to try to find out what AHF, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who introduced this. We talked about how Michael Weinstein introduced this uh, uh, measure and how they've been supporting it, like looked at how they were trying to um, sell it to the people. And I really didn't see even the same level of campaign um, materials and infiltration of public space that I did with even Measure S. So I'm curious if you guys have even seen, like, what have you seen? 
I, the most of the stuff I've seen about 10 has been from like my friends who are working on these issues, but I, ha I can't say I've seen like a huge yes on 10 push. Do you guys agree? If you Google Prop 10, I personally get an avalanche of no yeah. paid for a no Google ads. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I mean, billboards. I mean, but not even that many and not even many good Are any ones. any of the AHF uh, billboards still up? I mean, I think they've pretty much all been converted by now, right? Well, there, yes I, on 10 I still billboards. saw some. I still see some that are like Syphilis STD. Explosion. I, still see, I still see some gonorrhea tsunami well, ones. I wonder and if I, that's because during Measure S, they saw an actual syphilis explosion. So, <laughs> let me, why don't we back up for our, our listeners who are like, yeah. what <laughs> on earth is going on? So, you don't think our listeners are familiar with a gonorrhea explosion, Liam? <laughs> no, it was a gonorrhea tsunami. Oh, tsunami. Syphilis Sorry. explosion. What's the quickest possible way to explain this? It's really not easy. The sponsor <laughs> of Proposition 10 runs an organization called the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, which is most famous for in Los Angeles for these very cheeky billboards that uh, advertise their STD testing services. Some of which show a this apocalyptic volcano <laughs> with the text syphilis explosion. Some of which just have a giant condom on them. Uh, things of that nature. Pretty much all of those have been converted now to say yes on ten. Mm. Uh, but not all of them. I'm telling you. Yeah, I I've seen. You. Yeah. So I mean, that is true. That there has been obviously less. I would say uh, media saturation for the yes on ten, um, even as compared with the the measure s campaign as you both said um which was but, a, which was a slow growth measure in la that right. failed uh 20 early, early 2017 March, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, however i mean we do see in the poll that la is the single region where there is the most support for yep. prop 10 right. so i don't know if okay. there's a relationship so there. they know that we're in so they're maybe focusing their money I, I, I don't else? know i mean Do that, it, does make, it does make sense that that is where most of their right. property it, like where their billboards are and things like that uh, i don't know if that is the reason why or if it's because la is compared to the urban centers in the north um a, a considerably lower income so i i've Two points, maybe three points. Um, uh, one is if you look at their their financial thanks. <laughs> yeah, Matt's just Matt's used to it. <laughs> okay, right here we He's go. Like, only here comes two, the point. Only three. Two, only three. So uh, on the on the one hand, um, if you look at their financial reports, their campaign uh, 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 numbers, they've burned through a lot of money. So they've raised thirteen million, but spent you know more than twelve, and so that means they have, don't have a ton left to uh, to spend. Second, you tend to see um, spending really ramp up or things sort of appear when everyone gets their ballots. And that doesn't happen until next week. So I, I would not be surprised to see sort of more of an avalanche of uh, of pro, particularly if you have limited funds, then that's when you want to focus your attention and your right. time, right? When someone gets their ballot. The third thing, I don't know if you guys were surprised about this too, but uh, the Bay Area numbers in this poll yeah. were really, really poor. Very low. And yeah. really low. And I was that was another sort of really shocking finding that that folks in the Bay Area, which have been dealing with this crisis as much as anybody, um, don't did not tend to support this this measure as uh, you know as as high as other areas. I, I personally thought it was uh, staggering the the difference in support level between LA and everywhere else. Essentially, um, is, especially considering uh, LA, I think is is typically seen as a not super uh, 
I don't think that we're seen as the locality that is going to rock the boat in terms of pushing for progressive policy. That is more something that you would associate with San Francisco or Oakland or, or Berkeley, et cetera. But that's not the case here. It's possible that they have another uh, maybe source of advertising that we've talked about. Uh, if you want to be cynical about it, uh, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation runs a group of thrift stores called Out of the Closet. And oh, in yeah. Los Angeles, those are all closing. There's one in Echo Park that closed. Oh, no. uh, there's one in uh, Hollywood. <laughs> That's super upset. The one right oh. on Sunset in, on Hollywood Sunset in Hollywood is closing. And I believe there are signs up now that say, like, closing because the rent is too high or I something. I think that one in Echo Park for sure said that. The other one is being um, sold to a develop, you know, being developed into a tower, which I'm sure is some kind of statement could could be used as some kind of statement sure, as well. Sure. Uh, so maybe people are reacting to their to their favorite stores closing. He, he, here's a question. This is a question that I have about Prop 10. Uh, this could potentially be very bad for the rent control movement in general. If this gets on the ballot, if it's something if it's left up for voters and it and it doesn't go through, it does set back the movement pretty substantially. A lot of bills get pulled off the ballot because the proposers of the of the of the proposition make some kind of deal with the legislature this happened with a with a bunch of bills this cycle right i know um david chu and richard bloom in the assembly had proposed to repeal Costa Hawkins earlier this year. So they tried to get something through the legislature already, but was there ever any discussion about a deal being made but from the people pushing prop 10 and the legislators was that did you, like, do you guys get the sense that that was ever on the table to try and work out some kind of compromise? Yes and no. So yes, there were negotiations um, between the apartment association and Weinstein um, and his allied tenants groups. Um, this happened in May. May? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nice. Mm -hmm. We harmonized on that. Uh, um, and they really, and the reason I say yes and no is so yes, as a fact, there were phone calls and some type of back and forth. The reason I say no is because they really didn't make any progress on those negotiations whatsoever. Okay. The tenant side and the landlords were too far apart. And part of the complication was um, the apartment association, which was leading the negotiations on the no on 10 side. They weren't just representing landlords. They were representing um, huge corporate entities that now rent out single-family homes like Blackstone, Blackstone which is a private, yeah. private equity firm that owns a lot of um, real estate in Southern California, actually. Um, and, uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on the other interest group that, um, oh, developers writ large, developers writ large, and realtors. Um, so it was hard for them to kind of coordinate a a single bargaining position. So yes, there were discussions. Were they real? From my understanding, not really. And to your point, Hayes, too, it's not just the tenant groups who had a lot to sort of gain from a potential deal. Certainly the landlords did, too, because if Prop 10 were to pass, yeah. that's potentially 500 rent control campaigns yeah. across the state that they have Oof. to fight, <laughs> right? Expensive. With a lot, a lot of money and yeah. a lot of different, you know, uh, sort of nuances in each individual community. And so there was there was certainly some incentive for them to come to the table, too. Yeah. 
The Blackstone thing is interesting. It's a, a like a an, an aspect of Prop 10 that we haven't really discussed. Uh, Costa Hawkins prevents rent control being imposed on any single family residence. Yes. Uh, and those are the kind of rental properties, single family homes that Blackstone and other private equity firms have been buying up like crazy. Yeah, we've done a story on that at Curb, and it is just astounding to see how many single family homes are being converted into rentals mostly because of what happened 10 years ago, the foreclosure crisis. Like it's, it's kind of crazy to see like how we have overbuilt our single family homes and now we're not owning those. We're renting those back to people. Right. Yeah. And that also, I guess, informs for me a little. I've always kind of wondered why single family homeowners really even care about rent control. It's just like stay out of it, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> they shouldn't be allowed to vote. <laughs> but it does. I guess this would theoretically devalue the earning potential, at least of their properties, uh, if they were to decide to rent them out or sell them to uh, um, to some group that was going to rent them and out. That's a huge concern for a lot of homeowners. I mean, you you guys have written about this like it's it's, that's like protecting your investment. That's a very terrifying thing to some people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so the, what the proponents would say to that is like, look, I don't think in any, in any legitimate world, I've never, I have not heard any tenant groups say we want rent control on every single family home. What I've heard most of the tenant groups tell me is that if cost stockings were to go away and they wanted to do a rent control policy, it'd be something like, well, if you own four, four or more single family homes, or if you own a certain percentage, or if you're yeah. a publicly traded entity and you own single family homes, that's what we want to target. And your appealing cost Hawkins allows you to do that. But sort of to your point, there was a, there was a, a decision that tenant groups had to make about the kind of measure they wanted to have. Was it, mm -hmm. we're going to do this to repeal a thing, which we talked about before, there's some complications with that, mm -hmm. or would you want to prescribe some form of rent control um, in some way or the other? But obviously, if you do that, then there's other complications, other political fights that you have to do to, you know, at least in your own side in terms of coalition building, and, and you make more enemies than you otherwise would. Right. And so it's a it's a tough it was a tough choice. This is what they came to. You could certainly see some advantages of it. We'll let locals decide. It's a simple message. Right. Um, but that's also runs into some of these problems where you can be open to attacks like where well, you're going to screw my, you know, my grandma out of her right. out of her earning potential. It's simultaneously you know? the most innocuous path and the most extreme. Yes. Where the this the, the way they did it, repealing cost Hawkins doesn't technically do anything. Right. But it could do everything yeah I, I, I'm, good. I'm actually yeah. i'm really curious uh there's your tagline for your right. yeah, that's a great slogan yeah. uh liam and and matt to get your your guys's take on this um so what do you think from the perspective of the state legislature what might people expect to see from our leg legislators if uh prop 10 passes or if it doesn't pass. Do you think that we'll see follow-up legislation if it goes down in defeat? Or is this kind of like a one-stand thing where if it goes down, we won't hear about rent control uh, in the state capitol? That, that is a literally $100 million question. That's a, that's a very, very good question. So I'll defer to Liam and then I'll follow up. Okay. So I think... <laughs> I think um, uh, the, the sort of the first question is in my mind is not necessarily what the legislature would do if prop 10 fails, but rather what the apartment station would, would want if prop 10 fails, because they're going to have a ton of more leverage than they have now. 
and they have to decide. But I don't think this discussion, even if it fails, even if it fails by a decent sized margin, is going to go away. You're already having a ton of local fights. I would expect more of them to come, even with the existing Costa Hawkins regime. And so the Department of Justice could say, look, we have some leverage now because we've won this battle. Either we're going to say, that's it, we're done, you guys go home, we won. Or they say, oh, okay, this is not going away. Let's have a conversation about things that we're willing to give up from a, position, from a position of strength and how that would get wrapped into sort of a larger conversation about housing that I certainly expect to happen with a new governor in office next year. I think that's certainly a possibility. I, I think a lot will depend on and let's just assume for the moment that Newsom gets elected, which it looks like it will or looks like he will, a lot will depend on his kind of grand housing strategy. When Villaraigosa was um, was uh, running in the primary, he kind of explicitly laid out, I'm opposed to Prop 10, but I want to have um, rent control and Costa Hawkins repeal as a negotiating chip that I can include in a broader housing package. Um, Newsom hasn't been so explicit, but I wouldn't be surprised if something like that um, e- emerges. That that being said, if this goes down and this goes, if this loses and loses big, the the apartment association is going to be n- not incredibly um, willing to give a ton of ground. You know, it's just they're like, well, uh, we Californians clearly aren't a fan of this, and they're pro Costa Hawkins, and why the hell should we give an inch? But I think there is still a lot of political capital to be gained on a city level in a place like LA, especially, uh, and, and pushing for rent control or tenant protections in, in general. Um, so I don't know if this doesn't work, maybe the Ellis act, which allows for more evictions is, is the next, uh, is the next target for tenant groups. I'm, uh, I'm not really sure, but we should talk about, this could be an avocado in its own right. Ooh. Uh, two the, avocados. Yes, this is a, well. It's two shows. <laughs> two avocados. Uh, the, one, that would be an avocado a week if you had two in a right, fortnight. You could have one per week. So uh, there uh, was a landlord in L.A. Uh, Rampart Property Management, I believe, uh, that uh, sent a letter to is all it of li- its. It's Rampart, literally. Yeah, it's Rampart. Yes. Hey, yes. it's a like, it's a, a neighborhood. New, Sorry, we you know it's a street. A it's a neighborhood. Scandal. Yeah, it's a we can't get away from it. Where it's, we uh, it's unfortunate, good, but yeah, such good brand equity. Yeah, already <laughs> it's the one you would choose to head your property management company. It's great. They sent a letter to all of their tenants saying, "Hey, we are announcing a rent increase in anticipation of Prop Ten passing, and if it fails." We will, if it passes, we'll keep the rent increase. If it fails, we will, I think it said strongly consider. Yes, it they was. Didn't they didn't guarantee that they were, it, but it was like, <laughs> we will may recon, we will strongly reconsider. Yeah. Yes. I, I think one of the things that I told uh, you, Hayes, and, and Liam was that in the same thing happened to my father in reverse in the 70s um, when Prop 13 was on the ballot. Uh-huh. And his, his landlord said, if Prop 13 passes, I'm going to get such a huge tax break that all of my tenants, I won't raise your uh, your rent for the rest of the time that you live here. So go out and vote for Prop 13. Isn't that like what Donald Trump's dad did when he was uh, a landlord as well? I think it was similar. <laughs> <Probably>. to- <laughs> so, so my dad wouldn't have been allowed to be one of Fred Trump's tenants. though. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so fun facts about Prop 13 and rent increases. Um, 
there is a strain of thought uh, that the modern um, or initial rent control measures that are in uh, L.A. and uh, uh, in the Bay Area came after Prop 13 because tenants did not get the savings that they were promised Ooh, after Prop that's 13. That's good. Good passed. twist. Yeah. So that's that's where it was like, well, homeowners got something. Where's my thing? And that's how a bunch of measures passed late 70s, early 80s. Interesting. But also interesting because rent control was really popular at first, I think, in like the Santa Monica's and West Hollywood, like in the west side of L.A., right. which was also where Prop 13 was extremely popular. Uh, so despite the NorCal bias uh, in, the, in the state house, uh, and uh, some would say on the Gimme Shelter podcast, uh, we, we've been, <laughs> Some did actually say this. We've been uh, very jet. We've been very influential down down here in LA on uh, some of these uh, very dramatic uh, propositions. You know, the power right now is all Southern California. You know, the legislative leaders, the previous leader of the Senate was That's from LA. Right. The current one, San Diego, leader of the Assembly, LA. Prior to that, San Diego, and right. so it's all, all next, down south. Next stop, getting somebody elected to state office. <laughs> <laughs> we have Javier Becerra. That's the one. That's the one representative we we have up there. I mean, can we talk really briefly about the pr- prospects of the new governor? I mean, da, is his housing agenda and an agenda? I mean, I think people consider his ethos to be aligned with with Jerry Brown but I heard this I heard this ad for John Cox the other day um that was like homelessness traffic uh wealth inequality all happened on Jerry Brown's watch same the same will happen with Gavin Newsom I mean there is something to be said about that and how do we how do we reconcile that? I mean, how do we, not that I'm voting for John Cox, but, but how, how do we, do we know he's going to do anything different and how, and do we know even what he stands for is what my biggest questions are. So I like holding people accountable to things that they say. Um, and Gavin Newsom has said something very big on housing, which is that he wants developers in the state to build 500,000 new homes every year for seven years which to put into context, since the business industry began keeping track of housing permits in the late, in the mid 1950s, the most it's ever been done in one year is 320,000. So he wants 500,000 a year for seven years in a row, which is an insane, insanely high number, right? Right. And I think what that means is you have to tackle, if you have any chance of tackling getting close to that number, you have to take on one of the three sort of third rails that I think exists in, in California politics in this issue, changing Proposition 13, changing the rules under the California Environmental Quality Act, uh, which is a, you know, an environmental regulation that has that most developments have to go through that could take a long time to, to, to proceed through and uh, talking about local control over housing approvals. And Can so I name one more, one yeah. that we don't talk about enough, I think yeah. is Article 34, uh, in the California yes. state charter. It's in the Constitution. California Constitution that yes. says basically that cities are not allowed to build uh, affordable housing without putting it up for a vote on the on the city ballot. Passed in the 50s, it was a totally 
anti-poor, right. to- very racially charged uh, constitutional amendment, and uh, we don't talk about repealing it enough. I personally, I, don't think. I, I think you're right. It's shocking how little attention that that gets. I mean, uh, to be clear, people have found workarounds and ways around that, and uh, but yes, you're right. I mean, I think that that's uh, certainly with respect to our history something that we have not yet reckoned with. I think to, so to give a little bit more even perspective from uh, from an L.A. standpoint, um, Garcetti, our, our mayor in L.A., uh, in 2015, I want to say, had a an ambitious goal for housing that I think got a lot of news at the time, which was to build 100,000 units in L.A. Uh, over a span of, I think, six years. So like 15,000 units a year. So. Uh, just like paltry in comparison to what Newsom thinks is possible. I agree with you. There needs to be uh, one of those four major uh, third rails in California politics would have to be addressed. Do you think, uh, or I guess I should say, which do you think is least daunting among those four to even take a swing at? That's tough. (laughs) That's really so it's, a, it's a murderer's I mean, row of, so of things that will get you drummed out of office. Yeah. Or, so or kill your presidential campaign in, in <laughs> exactly. four years. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And uh-huh. w- one of the other points that's important to keep in mind is, you know, housing is, is an issue that you're not going to cure in a two-year time span, a four-year time span, uh, maybe even a decade, right? Especially here in California. So if you do, and this was a point that one of Liam's colleagues at the LA Times made, which I thought was a good one. If you do have presidential aspirations and you want to show what you were able to get done, uh, maybe housing is not what you stake your political capital on. In terms of the the reformable third rails, I guess if gun to my head, maybe sequel reform, um, out of the ones that have been described, I mean, someone will someone will take you up on that. Put, <laughs> put the actual gun to your head. Should we explain that? Have you got? I mean, do we need to yeah. explain that? Yeah. What sequel reform would look like? You guys have talked about it a lot like? more than we I mean, have. Maybe so. for our listeners. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So the uh, sequel is the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, it is often praised by environmentalists as uh, the state law that has made California um, have breathable air and drinkable water. Um, and a bunch of other environmental benefits that um, that we enjoy. On the flip side, it is often abused um, to delay or outright obstruct and prevent the construction of new housing, uh, be it market rate or affordable housing. You talk to any developer and they will um, bore you to tears with CEQA stories. Um, and it's, it's often abused in a way where, you know, a rival developer is going to invoke CEQA to stop a project. A labor union who wants to get on the action um, tries to stop a project. A good example in L.A. is a bomber's move to uh, make a Clippers arena in Inglewood. There's a sequel threat from the Great Western Forum, um, which may be not so much concerned with the environmental implications of a new arena, but more the economic downside to them if that gets built. And they've said as much, basically, yes. that it is an economic thing, but they are still using CEQA because it's a tool at their disposal they can use it's to halt. a huge amount of leverage for anyone who doesn't want something to happen. Exactly. And so there there have been efforts recently to to, to abridge CEQA or sidestep CEQA that have been successful. So SB 35, which was a piece of legislation by Scott Weiner, uh, Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco last year, um, if you built a project that included a certain percentage of affordable units and met a bunch of other requirements, 
you could avoid the sequel process. So that that's that's why I mean, compare that to anything that's really been done on Prop 13, like right. At least some small thing has happened with we with do CEQA. have. Uh, so I, I think it is interesting because we have uh, SB 35 as a um, sort of incipient sequel reform. We also have seen uh, an attempt at reforming local control over zoning with SB 827. Also, uh, Scott Weiner from San Francisco last year. That's right. Uh, that did go down in defeat. However. Scott Weiner said that he would bring back a revised version of it this upcoming year. So that we will happen. Yeah. So we have uh, two of the third rails are you know people are losing their fear of going. At least one person is losing their fear of going after these previously untouchable uh, state laws. So to your it's point, really just Scott yeah. Weiner. Right? <laughs> but, but he's did, got he's got people on board. He does, with him. But sure. I mean, I feel like he is he's really taking the hits for a lot. Of, we can go back right. to this too as well. But he's taking a lot of the like political hits from this as well. So to your point on seco re- changes or reforms, I mean, there have been a lot that have been proposed and actually passed in an, in the last ten years or fifteen years. Be- but the problem with a lot of these is that they're written so specifically just to deal with every interest group that cares. Yeah. At the end of the day, there has the most money. Right. At the end of the day, there's one or two or zero or four or five projects that it can actually meet all the requirements. And then and then you can sue over whether the particular project actually met all those requirements to uh, bypass seek review processes. So. By sort of forcing everything into this small box, people can say, yes, we reform CEQA, but the reality is the smaller you make the box, the fewer the projects can actually fit. And and I wonder, too, because we also had, uh, I think, a lot of people, myself being somebody who has been active in uh, trying to get people to vote for Prop 10 locally here in L.A., um, full disclosure, uh, I I think that... uh, Did you call me? Yeah, you didn't knock on my door. (laughs) You guys are, I was in Hollywood. You guys are in ritzier areas, I guess. Um, So, but as as far as that goes, I think that a lot of uh, tenants, rights, activists, or people concerned with the housing crisis from a left-oriented perspective had seen Prop 10 on this year's ballot uh, sort of as a way to gin up popular excitement yep. for a run at split roll in 2020, which is something that we know is coming. Uh, split roll being split, split roll being uh, this notion that you would tax property differently based on whether or not it was commercial or residential. Prop 13 gives huge tax breaks to property owners. Uh, irrespective of what kind of property it is. So you end up with a lot of businesses that are saving extraordinary amounts of money relative to what their properties are worth. Uh, Split roll would make it so that uh, commercial properties would be accessible uh, almost the way that they are other places in the country. uh, And and it would be a major increase for for owners of, of businesses and things like that, but it would not touch the residential side of things. However, Prop 13 is kind of like the, uh, uh, for lack of a better comparison, like the Omar from The Wire, like Hell if you, yes. <laughs> you <laughs> come at the king, you best not miss exactly. sort of thing. Yes. So I, I kind yes. of wonder how people are going to feel if Prop 10, you know, that was sort of the lead up to trying to do this major split role thing. No one has really attempted. Uh, Jerry Brown, I think, famously said, you know, he got tired of uh, trying to 
dream about reforming Prop 13. And it was just it was something that he had given up on politically. So I wonder what happens to the momentum for that if Prop 10 doesn't pass. So what's interesting about the split role initiative that you just mentioned is that it looks like it's going to qualify, which is yeah. the first, I mean, there's been talk about this for decades, but the first time it looks like it actually will have enough support to get on the ballot, which is a hurdle. They can always pull it, as we've seen a lot, and Hayes referenced earlier to other ballot measures, it, this could go away. And so I don't think it definitely was going to appear, and particularly maybe, I mean, that changes the calculation on what happens with Prop 10, maybe, or something else, whether there's enough support, per, and it would have to come from unions predominantly, I don't really see any other financial supporter for this, to really go all in to combat what would be an ocean of money from business groups to to prevent it. Can you talk about why unions might support split role? So more state money means more union workers. That's a good reason to me. <laughs> and higher wages. Yes. Uh, we missed a good transition earlier. We're talking about Scott Weiner, uh, who is going to be our, our guest Wow. Oh. On our next episode, a lot of people coming down from Sacramento to kiss the ring. You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're noticing. Uh, so that we're actually kind of going to, he happens to be passing through town and we're going to go to him. We're actually going to like ambush him on the street, probably yes. on yeah, his way between right. speaking um, engagements. But we'll talk about 827 part two. Uh, that, yeah, what that are they going to call it? Eight. Two seven, the return. They got to rename it, Something right? Sinister, How does that like work? That, sure. Maybe you guys could come out another time and just explain the, the legislature, numbers? just everything, like how everything works. Because I think yeah, we even would do a that. basic yeah. like explainer on how our state government works, which right. I don't fully understand yeah, at all. Great. That would be really great. So, quick thing on the numbers: the numbers start over every two years. <laughs> Whoa! Uh, what? Yeah. That yeah, doesn't yes. make any sense. Why? Well, because it's a two-year session. Oh, yeah. So, oh, okay. so the next version of 827 will be a, a lower number. Okay, so guess what would it be? I don't know. But there are some legislators who reserve certain numbers oh. yeah. for particular bills. Is there a ceremony like SB1 was the gas tax? Was that right. them being like, this is like the big one? Like, <laughs> yeah, like how does that work? Do you buy your <laughs> way to no the way top? That was just an accident. Like, how does that work? So there was an effort for something to change um, labor laws for contractors. The legislator who wanted to do that really wanted AB 1099. Oh, cute. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants 69? Uh, we'll leave that for the explosion of what was explosion? Syphilis. Syphilis, yeah. Syphilis, Syphilis explosion. explosion. Yeah. I, feel yeah. like, I feel like we didn't ask you guys any questions. So I'm just go for it. Because we just one, talked a lot. Go for I, it. Yeah, ask one. Sure. So I think you guys kind of referenced this and me growing up in L.A., I kind of felt this too. It seems like the housing crisis in California is viewed through a Bay Area lens. And I think that's somewhat unfair. I'm wondering if you guys agree with that and what kind of specific examples um, you guys have of that. I have the example of having muted every person from San Francisco on Twitter. <laughs> I, for my quality of life, I have to do that at some point as well. I know way yes. too much about the infighting up there, uh, but, yeah. but I think it's for a couple of reasons. One, I think 827 part one was directed very specifically at San Francisco uh, changing, uh, changing zoning up there. And I think it came as kind of a shock, uh, when people in LA were really again, the two, uh, Scott Weiner who put it forward when people in LA were really not in favor of it because of what it would do in parts of South LA. Um, I think one reason why it's viewed through a Bay area lens is something we lament on here a lot. Same reason everything is viewed through a Bay area lens because Bay area politics are just a lot more contentious 
Uh, there's so much grievance up there. There's so much fracturing. You can actually take sides and when, in, uh, with your Bay Area, mm-hmm. with your like San Francisco uh, supervisors. You can be a progressive. You can be a mod. You can have a team that you root for. What team? We don't have any teams here I in our city council. That. You don't have any team. I, I saw a good team this morning at the NACTO conference, I will have to say. No, you have teams among activist groups, but you don't have no, a... Maybe po- not. The, the, we had council members speaking at the at NACTO, conf- the NACTO conference this morning. So we had three council members talking to the National Association of City Transportation Officials conference, which was happening here in LA. And we had Nuri Martinez, Jose Wizar, and Marquise Harris Dawson on stage, all talking about the benefits of making improvements for pedestrians and vulnerable street users in their districts. And I was like, this is a good team. Yes. When it comes to road diets uh, and transit. But I, also housing. I think they're I think they're the same. They're, there's a team that's mostly the same people. Yeah, I, I, mostly the same I, well, they need names. I think that my <laughs> like um, super like superhero names. San Francisco, or like San Francisco has names. From, you, they sound like, like what oh, do you mean? Oh, that supervisor's a mod. Oh, that's what they say like up that? there. Am I right? Am I wrong? That, that's, that's what they say oh, up there. Right. From from my perspective, uh, I th- I think that uh, a big part of the reason why uh, I, I guess I don't know why uh, the Northern California part of the state seems like incapable of, of grasping what's happening in Southern California. But I, I do feel like that is, uh, I feel like that's the case. We mentioned uh, SB 27, of course, with um, Scott Wiener proposing a, a, a broad blanket upzoning of certain types of properties. They were defended uh, again in Northern California by, uh, uh, defended against passage by, tenants rights groups who were saying, ah, see, like these people in LA agree with us. But I felt like uh, only really in extremely broad strokes can you even begin to make LA's housing crisis look like San Francisco's. Uh, The actors are very different here as opposed to in San Francisco. Here, um, there is no boogeyman of uh, tech companies or... um, in Venice, the, the Venice but yet they has are. A, they have just as big of a presence here, which is but, kind but of it's localized. It, but it's it is, localized, yeah. It's hyper localized. It's not downtown. And, or, and, and you also, know, when like, you talk about um, tech companies moving into Venice, which had already uh, been subject to an extreme amount of gentrification, it's not the same as comparing uh, the mission, which is uh, I, again, I, it it is uh, mind boggling if you actually commit yourself to the task of trying to make Los Angeles resemble San Francisco. San Francisco is a tiny fraction of the size of Los Angeles. The mission represents um, the heart of uh, Hispanic culture in San Francisco. I defy you to name one place in Los Angeles that exemplifies that, that yeah. here. It's, it's not possible. Venice has seen an influx of tech money uh, and they are this like companies like Snap are pushing out millionaires, you know, like that's where Julia Roberts lives. It's not like they are the aggrieved, uh, marginalized community that maybe that's the case in the Bay Area. Yeah, not we're, anymore because the millionaires push, push the, yeah, them out. It, it's, it's just it, what we see in Los Angeles is much more. Um, we are, I think, one of the best descriptions I've seen of Los Angeles. Uh, is that it is a sunbelt economy grafted onto a rust belt economy. So we have a lot of the issues of uh, the parts of America that are dealing with loss of manufacturing jobs, 
stagnating and even declining wages and things like that, along with a Sunbelt service industry. And I would go even further to say uh, a huge uh, non-citizen population that is completely disenfranchised. So we have all of this stuff going on. It's actually a much more complicated situation, I think, than what's happening in, in Northern California. Uh, and of course, every location has their own history with uh, racism, or segregation and um, disinvestment. So it, it's hard to parse uh, our housing crisis through the lens of San Francisco, vice versa. The opposite is, of, of course, true. Um, but I, I do hope that people spend more time trying to learn about what is happening in, in Los Angeles on its own terms. Great way to do that. We'd be listening to this, this show. <laughs> I would never, I would never suggest that. But yeah. Well, do you agree with that? You spend a lot more time in uh, Northern California than, than we do. Visiting or Visiting. I mean, I've never, yeah. I mean, I talk to those people. I haven't muted them on Twitter, but, um, <laughs> not yet. I'm petty. But I, I mean, I will say that I think I think your comment was exactly right. I mean, again, we have to we have to blame the sprawl in a way. And the fact that when we talk about San Francisco, we rarely talk about Oakland and Berkeley and Cupertino and all these other cities, which are the same geographic area as, you know, all of Los Angeles. So um, it's very hard to encapsulate what happens in a what eight by eight mile um, pocket of the world. Um, and compared to anywhere else, much less this grand city of Los Angeles. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank us for joining you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Liam, you have to catch a train. I do. You're going down yeah. to San Diego, which really gets the short end. And <laughs> no one ever talks about San Diego. It's a giant city. It's so big. It's like a top 10 city. Yeah, and it's then, crazy. You know, yeah. Uh, anyway, th we got to do this again. This is wonderful. Do it. Yeah. We'll come to you next time. Awesome. Thanks, Thank guys. you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.